A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, Episode 2, the I Have Marshall McLuhan Edition. I'm Shane Harris, your host, Senior Correspondent for the Daily Beast and Fellow New America. Welcome back. If you joined us for Episode 1, we're very glad that you tuned in again. On this week's episode, Foreign Fighters, Should You Be Afraid, Very Afraid, Why Do We Care Who Condemns the Charlie Hebdo Killings, and the Evolving Vocabulary of Cyber Warfare. Plus, later in the show, our Object lesson segment. But first, let me introduce my my guests, as always, joined by Ben Wittes, Second Degree Black Belt. Hey! And Tamara Kaufman with us, who once watched the Olympic judo matches on television. Don't ask me who won. Okay, I won't. You know, I'm sure you, you probably remember. Um, this week, we're going to start off, as always, with our uh, traditional first segment, Wordplay. This is where each of us brings in a text, an article, an op-ed. It could be anything written on paper, words being the key uh, feature here. And we're going to chew it up, dissect it, talk about what it means to rational security. Uh, so, Ben, what do you have this week for Wordplay? So I have a paper uh, by my Brookings colleagues, uh, Jeremy Shapiro and Daniel Byman, uh, entitled, Be Afraid, Be a Little Afraid, The Threat of Terrorism from Western Foreign Fighters in Syria and Iraq. And it argues uh, that as the Paris uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, killings show, we have a very serious, scary problem on our hands with returning foreign fighters. You know, Ben, I have to say, I think you're mischaracterizing the thesis of this paper. No, I, I really don't think I am. And I, and I, you know, it wouldn't be I, the first. It wouldn't be the first time. And, you know, Dan and Jeremy are, are colleagues I work very closely with. And I know that what they're saying is that this threat is completely overblown. I mean, you've got it exactly backwards. Yeah. Well, I have Jeremy Shapiro right here. Um, Let's see what he thinks. Yeah, this man clearly has no idea about my work. Uh, I don't know how he got to be a senior fellow at Brookings or anywhere else. Uh, in fact, uh, the work very clearly shows, and uh, my body of work, frankly, shows that uh, that there there is a problem with foreign fighters. It is something to be worried about, but that it has been uh, strongly exaggerated, particularly in the press and by certain. Uh, U.S. and European officials, and that while terrorist attacks are certainly a possibility, and and the attacks in France are uh, are a demonstration of that, that we have that we have to be very careful about exaggerating this threat and about taking measures that could actually make it worse or limit our freedoms in in response. Okay, so I want to first of all just make clear that I set myself up here as the sacrificial lamb who gets to look like the jerk in in, in the Woody Allen line. And yes, I was intentionally uh, mischaracterizing Jeremy and Dan's paper. In oh, you're saying that now. In exactly the fashion that it has been widely mischaracterized in the media. So, um, Jeremy, let's uh, actually break down what's actually in this paper. And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a careful and interesting argument um, that is not dismissive at all of the security concerns, but is also lays out a number of ways in which those, there are factors that mitigate those concerns, and then lays out what I think is in some ways the most interesting part of the paper is a very careful set of policy interventions and recommendations aimed at the specific points in the process by which people who go abroad to fight um, get radicalized, come back, and sort of turn into terrorists. So just kind of walk us through. Uh, it's a it's a long paper, and obviously you're not going to you know read it, but just kind of give us a sense of the trajectory of the paper. Well, in our view, there is a for for a typical foreign fighter, there is a sort of what you might call a terrorist production system, uh, reducing it to its to its core. Uh, which has five stages to it. This is the process that any foreign fighter needs to go through in order to become a terrorist in his home country. Uh, and the first stage is you have to decide to go to a land of jihad. Uh, the second stage is that you have to travel 
to that land of jihad. The third stage is that you have to train and fight there. The fourth stage is that you have to return to your home country. And the fifth stage is that you have to uh, decide and plot uh, to carry out a terrorist attack in your home country. Those are the stages that any foreign fighter would go through. And what we, what we demonstrate or what we try to recommend is that each of, at each of those stages, um, there are ways in which people will essentially drop out of the production system. They will, they will fail to move along the path. And at each of those stages, there are discrete policy interventions which can encourage that uh, and which can push people off the path and therefore reduce and mitigate the likelihood that people will complete the entire production system. So if you had to look at like right now with the with the Charlie Hebdo uh, attackers, the, the Kawachi brothers, and we're, we're talking about this at a time when information is coming in practically every few hours in this, but... What's, what intelligence officials I've talked to think is that they definitely traveled to Yemen. At least one of them may have uh, met with Omar al-Awlaki in 2011, the cleric who was killed shortly thereafter, the U.S. cleric who was killed in a drone strike, uh, and then came back to France, and then we don't know what happened to them. So sort of in the production cycle, what happens to, I mean, can, can, can they lay dormant, essentially, and then kind of become reactivated? Or, or, or where sort of how does the cycle apply to, to these two guys? Yeah, you know, it doesn't apply very well. Um, these guys didn't go abroad to become foreign fighters. Uh, we don't really know if they went abroad at all, but assuming the facts that you just laid out yeah. are true, um, they, they didn't take the path that we were talking about that, uh, and that has been canonically developed in the, um, in the sort of fears that people are bringing forward. The idea that people have been bringing forward is that people would go into fields of jihad and fight and train that's not apparently what they, that's not what there is being said that they did. So some of the stages were gone through by these guys. Um, but I think that it's, what we were discussing was, and I, you know, I think that people in my position are typically writing papers and saying, well, this is a narrower view than, every, than, uh, uh, than some people would like it to be. But we were discussing a, a relatively discrete problem, which is Iraq and Syria. And the reason we did that is because that's what people have been bringing up. And that's, and that's where thousands of foreign fighters have been going. Yemen, I think, has its discrete context and its discrete um, problems. And it is in some ways more dangerous, um, even though the numbers are many, many fewer. Uh, in, in Iraq and Syria, there is a much greater chance while they were there and when they return for uh, keeping track of them and for pushing them off the production system. You know, it seems to me that this the the difference between Iraq and Syria on the one hand and Yemen on the other hand also raises uh an issue about the scope of the problem faced by western governments i mean one thing that has been reported again we have yet to suss out just how relevant this was in this particular case but that the uh the french police were tracking these guys for a while but then gave them up in favor of other priorities apparently and you know, you can say on the one hand that the consequence of the Syria-Iraqi threat coming to the fore is that that suddenly becomes the high priority for intelligence agencies and they drop other things that they shouldn't. But there's also just the fact that these arenas are proliferating, these arenas of terrorist safe havens where people can go and be, and be further radicalized and trained and prepared for attacks are proliferating. The problem is getting bigger. Western intelligence agencies have limited capacity uh, and this is much more of a problem, obviously, in Europe than in the U.S., but at some point they reach the limit of what they can do. Yeah, no, I think that there's something to that. And we, we left open, I think, the question of whether this is a, whether there are resource problems here that should be addressed. But of course, resource problems are different than changing the way that you, that you deal with these things. And in fact, the point of our paper is that uh, Western intelligence services know how to deal with these things. They have the information necessary to deal with these things. It's possible in many cases they don't have the resources. And I, and as the problem gets bigger, I think that that's something uh, worth looking at. I think it needs to be said, though, that it's not clear. First of all, in this case, we have no idea what happened. We have no idea why these guys weren't uh, weren't watched. In, fa in fact, they well, may... What do you mean? Fox News has been telling me for a week <laughs> straight what happened. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just. I only don't. watch Fox News. Anymore. And it's all, it's all a problem in Birmingham, England. Did you know that? Yeah, this is why I don't go to Birmingham anymore. Uh, 
it's a no go zone. It's an it's a no go zone. Yeah, I'm I, being sarcastic. I think that the there is. I think that this sort of demonstrates to us that even from supposed experts, there are there is particularly in the immediate aftermath of a terrorist attack an incredible amount of false information. And basing policy on the week after a terrorist attack is a really dramatically stupid thing to do. Okay, so Jeremy, um, break it down uh, for the listeners. What is, in summary, the truth of the we have a big foreign fighter, returning foreign fighter problem, and what are the major factors that mitigate that and lead you to conclude that the problem is at least a bit less severe than the mere numbers would suggest? Um, I think that the the factors that mitigate principally are that are the ways in which people are falling off this terrorist production system. The vast majority of these people, we hear these sort of big, huge, round numbers, two, 3,000, but in fact, uh, Western foreign fighters going to Syria and Iraq. But in fact, uh, the vast majority of these people either uh, aren't coming back are coming back very disillusioned, uh, are, are coming back with no intention to fight, uh, are staying abroad and going to other fields of jihad, are simply not interested in the struggles in their own home countries. Uh, the Syrian and Iraqi wars have proven very, very disillusioning for um, uh, foreign fighters because there's a tremendous amount of internecine battling and it does it has tended to sour people uh, on on jihad and on the on the, the on the what's happening there in fact these the people who are going are very uh, inexperienced and very often naive finally I think one critical element is the intelligence coming out of the Syria and Iraq theaters on foreign fighters is impressively good. Uh, as The Onion reported a few years ago, the CIA invented this thing called Facebook. And apparently, the National Security Agency invented this thing recently called Twitter. And under these super-secret programs, people donate their information to American and Western intelligence agencies um, Devious. It's Shocking. it is a remarkably effective program. Which I, I, tell of this. I, I actually want to just interject here that there is, in fact, a government agency that systematically engages in bulk collection of all Twitter traffic. Every government it's, agency. No, it's the Library of Congress, <laughs> which has an agreement with Twitter yeah. to collect and store. Is that true? Yes. I want Congress to investigate this abuse of power. <laughs> Seriously, anyway, I, an unchecked librarian going exactly, through my tweets. Exactly. It's very, it's very scary. Yeah. And, the, and the more you think about it, the scarier it gets. Anyway, Jeremy, go ahead. Slightly more seriously, the, uh, this, this social media revolution, while it has been a, a boon for the recruitment of foreign fighters, has also been a boon for keeping tabs on them because they essentially are volunteering not only what they are doing but what their entire network is doing and they're creating the network maps which used to be the main job of intelligence to create for dealing with these things. So actually the Western intelligence agencies have a very good sense of who's coming back and how hardcore they're likely to be. None of this means that this, that uh, particularly with the numbers involved, that people can't slip through the cracks. And particularly, as you said, uh, if um, they're dormant for a long time. But I do think that we can't have as a standard of success absolute perfection. If our view is we are failing at our counterterrorism, if there is ever a terrorist attack, then we're setting ourselves up for failure and we're probably setting ourselves up for overreaction. So just one final question, and it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that we have very good intelligence on these guys when they move, go, go around. I've found out to be true generally in talking to people in the intelligence community and outside experts as well, that we don't have the foreign fighter problem that, you know, some members of Congress or some people might want to suggest that we do. So is your feeling that, generally speaking, the intelligence community in this country and the security services in Europe aren't losing their heads over this? And do you think that the attacks on Charlie Hebdo are going to change that or are we going to see a, a fairly pretty steady level response to this attack given that it was just such higher casualties uh well there's uh, there's two aspects to that um i think that we are uh i don't think that the intelligence agencies are losing their heads over this but i do think that they are very worried and appropriately so about the resource issue 
And there is a sort of temptation uh, among uh, security services um, to use problems like this to try to advocate for the resources that they genuinely believe they need and, and genuinely might need. Um, and so I think we see a certain exaggeration coming from intelligence and security services as part of that sort of normal process of securing uh, resources. But I think if you can get these people in the privacy of their boudoirs, um, they will admit to you that th although that this is a difficult problem, uh, they do have a handle on how to deal with it, if perhaps not all the resources to do so. Um, I... It, I am personally quite worried after after any terrorist attack, but after particularly one as symbolic and brutal as the Charlie Hebdo attack, that there's going to be uh, an overreaction because it changes the politics of the thing. And and we've seen this it, we've seen this in the United States, we've seen this in the United Kingdom, we've seen this all over the world. Um, that you know even even if a terrorist attack and frankly uh, you you said it had a tremendous number of casualties. It, 17 is, you know, a lot, but it's less than some school shootings. That's true. Um, yeah. We've had 74 school shootings in the 18 months after, after um, it hasn't moved Sandy Hook. At all on policy. Yeah, and, and it hasn't, we've essentially said, well, I guess we can live with that. And I don't personally understand precisely why we can live with 74 school shootings, but we can't live with one terrorist attack. Each one of them is a tragedy and, and, and a travesty. Uh, and we should be trying to do everything we can about both, but it's a, but there's an interesting politics to the terrorist attack. I think if we had the idea that we had to eliminate every single school shooting, we would, we would have to put into place draconian measures, which probably we would judge as a society were not worth it. Um, and the same thing applies, uh, to terrorist attacks. We have done very, very well in the United States and also in France, uh, at preventing terrorist attacks. It's not clear to me from this attack that we have any systemic flaw. It's just the tragedy of modern existence. Now, that's that's a hypothesis. It's worth investigating, but I don't think that it is ipso facto proved by the attack that we have a systemic flaw. But I do think that the politics of the moment will push in that direction. Okay, Jeremy Shapiro, thank you very much. I feel slightly less afraid. That's, that's good. And I also want to get in John Brennan's boudoir. Um, Wow. That's sure. <laughs> if you can get them inside their boudoir. I would love to know what John Brennan would say inside his boudoir. Wouldn't you? I'd just be fascinated to know that John Brennan has a boudoir. You know he has a boudoir. I'm, I'm all... If you're listening... I'm all for the inquiry into the question of John Brennan's boudoir. Call in. Tweet us about the boudoir. Yeah, if okay. you have information about the boudoir, tweet it at to at rats... Rat R-A-T-L. Rattle security. Rattle security. Um, I'm still see? processing the image of John Brennan in his boudoir. Gotcha Gosh, there. Thank you. Brennan's boudoir. You see something in the boudoir, say something. Okay. Tamara, what is your wordplay? Well, uh, continuing our, our theme of uh, stories that riff off of uh, this horrific um, set of attacks in Paris... I brought uh, an article by another Brookings colleague, this uh, a non-resident fellow of ours, Hisham Hellyer, who um, writes for us from Cairo. And he wrote a piece in the wake of the attacks uh, headlined, Paris killings require more than mere condemnation, which is, I think, a, a self-evidently true headline. Um, but he, he sort of talks about the dynamics that take hold in the wake of uh, attacks um, by Islamist extremists in the West, uh, and Hisham, I should add, is writing as a as a um, British Egyptian Muslim, uh, so he speaks from experience both in the West and in the Arab world. And he notes, I think, um, quite rightly, that uh, usually after these attacks. Um, People ask, why aren't Muslims condemning these outrageous actions? Uh, why hasn't this or that figure condemned this attack? Uh, and it's actually notable to me that we saw a lot of swift condemnations uh, very quickly after these attacks from major Islamic clerical authorities, um, the former chief cleric of Bosnia, Mustafa Cheric, uh, Al-Azhar University, which is sort of the the leading um, Orthodox uh, Islamic Center of Learning, uh, which is in Cairo, 
Uh, we saw condemnations very swiftly from a number of political leaders in the Arab world, from the Arab League. And yet these questions still kept coming. Why, why haven't we seen uh, Muslim organizations in the West or enough Muslim figures condemning these attacks? So it, it just got me thinking a lot about um, condemnations and why we focus so much on condemnations. Um, there's a, a second dimension uh, that I think pops up very frequently, um, which is that you see condemnations, but you see qualified condemnations. I condemn this attack, but those cartoons were really offensive. Or I condemn this attack, but, you know, France is really mean to its Muslims. I condemn this attack, but the problem of Islamist extremism is the result of oppressive regimes in the Middle East. Well, the problem of Islamist extremism is the result of Western support for oppressive regimes in the Middle East. Um, and so what you, what I think, uh, is a root of a lot of the dissatisfaction that you hear, uh, about condemnations is that they are qualified. Um, you know, it's, it's as though you go to, uh, the wake of your friend's father and you say, uh, I, please accept my condolences on the death of your father, but you know, I never really liked him anyway. Right, right. Um, in what circumstances is that an appropriate thing to do? None. So if you're going to condemn, uh, it seems obvious that you should condemn unconditionally. Or choose a different <laughs> word than condemn. You know, right. We right. strongly disapprove of. Right. We strongly disapprove of or, um, you know, we reject those who did this. You know, we cast them out, whatever. I, I think it just really forces the question, why does it matter so much? Um, why do we know which heads of state? have condemned. Obviously, heads of state are going to condemn acts of extrajudicial murder. Um, some people like to treat uh, condemnation as a test of ideological purity. Are you really in favor of free speech? Uh, you know, are you really against Islamist extremist ideology? Um, I think at the end of the day, at bottom, as I've been contemplating this issue of condemnation, it is simply about solidarity. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of an attack that shakes the confidence of a nation, what they are looking for is solidarity from the outside world. And solidarity is either there or it's not. It can't be qualified. It can't be conditional. So Hisham's piece to me um, was a good reminder of how we get kind of wrapped around the axle of unpacking these condemnations when really all that matters is that people are out there saying, we agree, this is bad and we really feel for you. So I actually really disagree that it's all about solidarity. Um, I think the reason people care about condemnations is that they doubt uh, at some very deep level that um, in certain cases, the values of the people doing the condemnation are sufficiently similar to their own that they should take the condemnation seriously. So let's take an example of this that is not um, related to, you know, Muslim terrorism or Islamic, Islamist terrorism. Um, killing abortion providers. Um, so whenever, uh, fortunately, it has not happened all that often, but whenever an abortion provider has been killed, um, the National Right to Life Committee has routinely um, issued a blanket, absolute condemnation saying that, you know, sort of no pro-life person should be, should give aid and comfort to this in any way. And there's always somebody in the uh, pro-life community who says, wait a minute, if you believe that a million babies are being murdered every year, why would you not take up violence to protect them? And, you know, I don't, and there's a lot of people by But isn't by that the, someone to the right of the National Right to Life Committee it, questioning their ideological purity? Well, but it's also, it also is sometimes people in the pro-choice community who are scratching their heads at the mismatch of rhetoric between the National Right to Life Committee and what they are actually willing to do. I mean, speaking as a pro-choice person, if I believed that a million babies were being born every, being killed every year, I would at least favor 
um, you know, disabling somehow, maybe, maybe not killing people, but certainly destroying the, the abortion clinics at night when nobody's there. I, I mean, the idea that you have to respond to that nonviolently is not intuitive to me, uh, a, a crime of that magnitude. So I think part of what goes on in the context of, of you know, Islamist terrorism is that people have, rightly or wrongly, sufficient doubt about the relationship between mainstream Islamic figures and some terrorist violence, that they are always parsing the condemnation to try to figure out how unequivocal it really is and whether the buts overwhelm the part of the sentence that come before the but. And I do think, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the Muslim American community in this, um, which I've, you know, dealt with on this issue a lot. Um, but I do think they have a bit of a problem here, which is that, you know, it's, it's not acute in the area of Al Qaeda where they're, you know, or, or ISIS or, or this stuff, but it is acute in the area of Hamas and Hezbollah where they, you know, there are pretty mainstream leaders at different times who have expressed condemnation of the acts while sympathy with the cause in, in, in some cases, and sometimes talked in language that implied the legitimacy of armed struggle, including armed struggle that, you know, really does not comply with the laws of war. And so I, I do think that there is a, a problem that, that a lot of uh, entirely law-abiding Muslim communities have had, which is a how to talk about um, acts that the but behind the sentence is really important to you. You know, yeah, I condemn this, but what the Israelis are doing in Gaza is not okay. And that comes out sounding in a way that is, you know, upsetting to a lot of people. And so I think, you know, there's a there's a complicated issue there. You know, I, I don't think we're disagreeing at all, actually, because I think what I was saying is that there are no circumstances under which a but is appropriate when what you're really, what you really should be doing or what the point is of condemning is a simple expression of solidarity and sympathy. There's no room for a but in that. And a but, any but in expressing solidarity, um, is a is taking away is undermining the solidarity that's that you say you intend to express. So anytime you put a but on the end of that sentence, you, the real point of the sentence is what comes after the but, not what comes before. But, I don't think we're disagreeing at all. Oh, but I think we are because what because what if <laughs> no? I insist that we're not disagreeing. I I disagree with you completely yeah, but, that we're disagreeing. But what if what you are actually trying to convey? I mean, what if the but is really important to you? And by the way, I have a lot of sympathy for Muslims who say but those cartoons are really offensive. I don't believe you kill people because what they're doing is really offensive. But I you know just <laughs> there's that but. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, I don't, I have not changed my, use the hashtag Je suis Charlie. I don't identify with people who talk that way. Yeah. I, I, guess, I guess I actually see it, um, close to Ben, but slightly, and I'm impressed by this more cynically. Uh, because, because it's tough, and I've been working on this. But I think actually, uh, the, d the desire for condemnation, the insistence on condemnation is an effort to seize the moral high ground. And to import into a morally complex issue an act, a morally simple one that you can then hang on the other guy. And so what you're everybody looks at the Paris killings and is immediately horrified and immediately wants moral condemnation of that. And so what you try to do is force your opponents on more complex issues like Hamas to, uh, to uh, express themselves in ways, either express themselves without the but, in which case you can later, uh, equate this moral, this moral certainty with the more morally complex issue, or to express themselves with the but and then tag them with supporting this morally fraught and morally absolutely outrageous act. And so I think it's actually this whole struggle over condemnation is as usual a political struggle, which is about more than just the thing that is being condemned or butted. 
So on the question of solidarity and expression of sympathy and outrage, can we just agree that there is no if, end, or but on this, that the administration completely dropped the ball by not sending a representative to the march in Paris? Well, let's be accurate. They did send a representative. It was just that it was our ambassador in Paris and not anybody more senior than that. But the the fact that we can all agree that that was a, an idiotic move, to me, speaks to the power of what I was saying before, why did it matter? Why does it matter who's there from the U.S. Right. administration? We were doing, you know, we were demonstrating support in all the material we ways. We were also that really helping them in the investigation. I mean, our, exactly. F- our FBI, you know, our legats in the embassy were busy going through right. So <laughs> would we would we rather spin the entire embassy up on a presidential visit, right. or would we right. rather help them out? But but the reason that they had to apologize for it is because it mattered to the public, both the American public ultimately, and uh, the public in Europe, that our president wasn't there demonstrating solidarity. It's exactly the point I'm making. I just think it's worth also noting on that point that the Israeli government did exactly the opposite thing. They came, the, the prime minister of Israel was not invited, came anyway, despite being specifically asked by the French president not to come, um, elbows his way to the front of the march and managed to make himself a part of this, a part of the story of solidarity with France against the will of the French government. And was condemned for it by many of his political opponents at home. I believe that is called chutzpah. Yes. No, no. It's, it, it's, but it's exactly the opposite. In the original French, yes. It's exactly the opposite of what Obama did. But I think actually, uh, like Tammy, I think that this actually makes my point. Because, um. <laughs> no, it makes mine. <laughs> because, uh, in fact, the French people and the French government were not condemning, uh, Obama not showing up. It was the, um, it was, uh, that was an issue in American domestic politics. That was an issue which was used by Obama's domestic political opponents to demonstrate that he was in, to, to try to put forward the line that he was an incompetent president. It actually didn't matter much for our foreign relations. I mean, I agree with everybody else that it was a mistake and that they should have gone, but I don't think it was very important and I don't think the French saw it that way, but it was something which people could spin up for political gain here and so they did. It was also something that mattered to a lot of people in my profession of journalism, which explains why the White House conceded the point so quickly. Because they care about what we think. Um, all right. You are so powerful. We are seriously not to be underestimated. Just saying. Um, so I'm going to move on to my wordplay. My wordplay is actually, it's a word. It's a new word. Well, maybe it's not a new word because I actually didn't go back and research whether this word has ever been used before because it's beside the point. Uh, cyber vandalism. Um, this word showed up in uh, on December 19th when President Obama... Uh, publicly blamed North Korea for the hack on Sony and sought to clearly delineate this aggressive action as something that was not exactly war, was not spying, and called it cyber vandalism, um, which I think probably struck a lot of people at Sony who had their information stolen as somewhat of an understatement. One former FBI official I talked to said it was farcical to call it that. But the word crept up again uh, recently in a press release from Central Command to describe the hacking of CENTCOM's Twitter feed, purportedly by ISIS. Of course, it was almost certainly not ISIS uh, that did it, I think. Uh, and then a Pentagon spokesman called it cy- a cyber prank. Um, and what I think is sort of notable about this is, like, putting aside the question of whether or not it is the right thing to call the Sony attack cyber vandalism or the Twitter hack, etc., it's very notable to me that senior officials and people whose job it is to uh, communicate with the press and the public are starting to use different and more specific kinds of words other than attack. The word attack has always been thrown around and went into talk of cyber warfare, cyber espionage, cyber whatever. Attack, attack, attack. And you know, I for one have tried in in my in my work and in my books to try and delineate and make distinctions about, you know, calling each particular act what it is, that just because it happens in cyberspace or over a computer connection, it's not an attack. I thought that was just interesting that you're seeing like it, nuance creep into the discussion here more than creep, probably actually quite deliberate. And, and partly, I would think, too, an effort to diffuse the situation. I mean, one of the things that's really stood out to me since the since North Korea was blamed for the Sony compromise or the event um, is the extent to which the administration has been trying to not couch its response as some kind of national act of war 
in a, in a way of almost sort of by, by sanctioning, we talked about this last episode, by sanctioning North Korea and also putting those sanctions in the context of long-standing grievances against North Korea, we're sort of seeking to not necessarily minimize what happened to Sony, but to not get completely freaked out by it either. So I, I think it's a really interesting point because it, it's, it goes back in a way to what Jeremy was saying before about resilience um, and uh, tamping down alarmism. So, you know, titrating the, the rhetoric, uh, around what can happen in the cybersphere. And, you know, let's be honest, this was trolling. I yeah, mean, totally. <laughs> what is a cyber prank? Totally. Trolling. Yes. So, you and know. Not ISIS either. Right. CENCOM got trolled. Yeah. Big deal. And let's please not think of Sony Entertainment, please, as part of our national critical yes. infrastructure. Yes. So I'm, I'm grateful. For, uh, for, I guess, what seems to be closer targeting, uh, on the rhetoric here, but there's a point at which people might feel that it's gone too far, or if there's some kind of, uh, cyber vandalism or cyber prank that has wider effects on the public, uh, say it screws up everybody's airline reservations before Christmas, you know, yeah. then that's gonna be treated much, much differently. Well, but I think that, Actually, one of the interesting points Shane's making here is that we probably wouldn't instinctively call that cyber vandalism, right? If you, because there's some sort of sabotage associated with it. Whereas this, the CENTCOM thing in particular is really defacing something. I, I mean, calling it, it really is more like spraying CENTCOM, spraying graffiti on the CENTCOM wall, right? Um, I think the term may be a little bit older than this, and I I want to say the first time I was aware of it was when the Syrian Electronic Army started defacing news websites um, and taking over other entities' Twitter feeds. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure about that, and it'd be interesting to sort of go back and figure out when the earliest times this term started showing up in the lexicon. I do think you make a really interesting point about the diversification of our vo vocabulary with respect to cybersecurity incidents. So it used to be that you would say cyber attacks and then people who knew the field would say, wait a minute, there are intrusions and there are exploit, there, there are intrusions, then there are attacks which are malicious, and there are exploitations which are basically theft, and you can't just, you can't call a cyber exploitation a cyber attack. Now it seems to me there's a whole bunch of different kind of more nuanced vocabularies for, for what you might call generically cybersecurity incidents, right? There's cyber sabotage incidents. There's also things that, you know, are basically real world Incidents that take place online, cyber bullying, right? Which is a form of cybersecurity, right? Except it's really just one person picking on or one group of people picking on somebody else. And we've developed a whole lot more kind of more evocative vocabularies for different categories of incident. Um, and I, I would be interesting to know when, when cyber vandalism showed up in the lexicon. It's, you know, it's, it's undoubtedly true that cyber vandalism as a term has been around for a long time, but I think that Shane is very correct to point out that, uh, that it's gotten a presidential usage recently and a lot of usage by the government and that that's part of a diversification of terms. And I think that that is very significant in the way that you say. And, and to me, it's an effort by the government to allow them to be more calibrated in their responses specifically to reduce the political fever in order to maintain their flexibility of response, which is a constant struggle. We were just talking about that in the terrorism realm. Once the, once the public and once the, the sort of, uh, feeding frenzy of the media, of which you are proudly a part, gets, um, gets involved, actually the government loses a tremendous amount of flexibility. And so I think they really want to use the terms to preserve that flexibility for themselves. And I think in a weird, in a way, it, the administration and probably more broadly speaking, the U.S. government should be glad that the first really significant hack, I mean, they had Home Depot and Target, but like the one that like merited, you know, a response from the president, we should be glad that it had these Hollywood elements attached to it because in some, to some degree, it was a public distraction, right? We were interested in this because it involves 
movie stars and a film and around Christmas and George Clooney weighed in. But it sort of like gave, I feel like it maybe gave some breathing room for the administration to craft a policy response around this without it being something like an attack on a bank that wiped out people's checking accounts. It was, people are it was so out. fabulous that we all cared. Right, exactly, exactly. You obviously do not case. have the same feeling about Angelina Jolie's reputation as I do, but if that's not part of the national critical infrastructure, then I don't know what is. <laughs> She's will, our greatest export. I, I will note that Charlize Theron used this to get $10 million additional dollars from Sony after it was disclosed that she got paid much less than Chris Hemsworth for the same movie. It, that's an that's an element, by the way. That's like not a non-trivial thing in Hollywood when these star salaries start coming out. You talk about a seismic disruptive force. I mean, having reported in Hollywood for a period of time, that matters. <laughs> that is like that is serious fallout. So I I will say that you know you you alluded to one FBI person saying this, but it is absurd to call this an act of cyber the vandal, Sony the Sony yes, attack. Yes, the yes. CENTCOM attack really does fit into that category. Yeah. But, you know, the FBI director has given not one but two major speeches on attribution of this attack, whatever one thinks of those. Uh, you should see, by the way, if you're interested in attribution of the Sony attack, you should listen to this week's episode of the Lawfare podcast, which has a lengthy discussion of the subject. Cross post. You know, if we – I might add that if we um, – if you imagine this as vandalism, you don't spend, the FBI director doesn't spend two major speeches talking about who wrote on, on a wall. Yeah, I, and I just, I mean, I'm just going to completely speculate totally carelessly on this. But like, I really feel like if you could get inside Obama's head on this one, he's just kind of like shaking his head and rolling his eyes a little bit. I mean, his response to it in the December 19th press conference was not just like trying to diffuse things. It was sort of like, you know, ah, this movie, and oh, you know, I, I love James Franco, and what's his name? I mean, it was really casual, and which was sort of, you know, betrayed by the idea of exactly that the FBI was sitting here thinking, like, we have got to come up with a response to this, because now everyone is looking at us, and, and depending on us to have 100% positive attribution about, an, an you know, an attack or whatever on a U.S. company by North Korea. That's a big deal. Can I just point out that in this podcast so far... We have gone into John Brennan's boudoir and President Obama's head. Oh, yes. Yes. We get deep inside on rational security. Well, I, I, so, you know, the president did, the Washington Post reported, did walk in on one of his uh, aides. In, in in his boudoir. In, in his boudoir. So, um, uh, and not alone there. Um, so this is uh, probably appropriate given the news. It's just starting to sound like House of Cards. Okay. This is the Obama on the couch edition. Um, let's move on to object lessons. Um, ben, what delightful uh, objet de sécurité have you brought in to share with us today? My objet de sécurité uh, goes back three years when I was in the uh, CIA's gift shop um, and um, decided to buy my kids some some CIA swag and bought them uh, bought my son a hoodie. Uh, from the CIA gift shop, only to find the label Made in Pakistan <laughs> on it. And so I took a picture of it, and I put it up on Lawfare. And uh, by the way, this is the only Lawfare post that has ever gone viral in Pakistan. Um, and um, all of which was an amusing little episode until a couple weeks ago when a friend of mine uh, sent me a... Uh, uh, um, a note that the NSA's hoodies are also made in Pakistan. This is a vast conspiracy. It, sure is. it is a vast conspiracy of Pakistani manufacturing of agent of, of American Intel agency swag. So if you look on Lawfare, you can see a picture of the hoodie with the National Security Agency's uh, logo. And uh, the little Made in Pakistan tag. And to all of our listeners in Pakistan, please do share this uh, image with all your friends on Twitter. Wow. Of course, conspiracy theorists in Pakistan would tell you that their country was sold to the CIA many years ago. And so it's only fair that they get to sell some sweatshirts back. They, they at least get a concession out of it. And can I just point out, I'm looking at the picture of this, and the, and the tag on this gray hoodie says, Gear for Sports. Can we just stipulate that nobody wearing an NSA hoodie is engaged is wearing gear for sports? 
Well, unless these are like drone flying. That well, that's <laughs> true. That's true. I'm, I'm just imagining these are being like are these? There's an actual NSA gift shop where this is sold, but Christmas. Uh, by apparently the way, so. I'm told, by the way, on very good authority, Christmas ornaments are the other thing that you could find this year in these gift shops. And somebody who I will go unnamed has apparently bought some for me. He has yet to give them to me. But it's just like icy Christmas ornaments. That's we got to get some. We're gonna we gotta, get gotta bring those for that's our gonna future, be that's gonna be a future object object lesson. lesson. Okay, tomorrow. Uh, you're holding your object. I, I am holding a small, uh, box of inlaid wood with a sort of traditional, uh, Persian miniature, um, not particularly high quality here on the cover of the box. This was a gift from a, uh, visiting scholar from Iran, uh, and it was given to me, oh, uh, over a decade ago now. But I, I brought it in today, um, because the Iranian nuclear talks resumed uh, today in Europe, and um, and while John Kerry and Javad Zarif were taking a walk in the woods to try and resolve the Iranian uh, standoff over the Iranian nuclear program, uh, there was an announcement in Tehran that Iran is building two new reactors, and uh, and there's also been news in the last few days that Jason uh, Rezaian, the Washington Post reporter who's been in jail uh, in Iran for some months, is going to be charged. Uh, and so it seems to me that whatever uh, good vibes might exist between Javad Zarif and John Kerry, whatever progress uh, we keep hearing the nuclear talks have made, um, this is a regime that has a really, really, really hard time saying yes. Uh, and, uh, and I think they keep making it harder for themselves. Now, um, optimists about uh, the possibility of a deal with Iran would point to hardliners in Tehran. They'd say this is because uh, there are others trying to undermine Zarif. And they're the ones who are making this stuff happen. But I think it's important to, to recognize that the climate uh, is getting worse, not better. Uh, the more time goes on, um, prospects were dim when they passed the deadline for the, uh, the joint plan of action in November. And I think they're just getting dimmer by the day. And it does seem like the indictment of the Washington Post reporter. That, that's going to, I would think, I mean, you, you, you pay much closer attention to this than I, but seriously complicates, you know, any feeling of goodwill or, you know, progress. I mean, this is, Americans are very, very sensitive right now to anyone, whether they be journalists, American aid workers, whatever. I mean, innocence being trapped in other countries. And I mean, am I, am I overreading that? Um, you know, I, I have no doubt it'll have some impact on American public opinion, but I just don't think American public opinion is that decisive for this deal. This is about whether the two, the, the two sides, I should say, the, uh, the six on one side and the one on the other can come to agreement on, um, terms for an Iranian nuclear program that both can live with. And, and, uh, and I think the Iranian determination to expand their program while they're negotiating constraints on it is probably the loudest indicator of all that this is just not going to work. Yeah. Well, that's something to look forward to. Not really. Um, okay. So my object lesson, this is actually kind of personal. And this is going to start really heavy, but I promise it's not that heavy. Okay. So this is a uh, a... a, a I guess you would call this a stone, a ground down stone. Uh, so my grandmother, a lovely woman, passed away recently. Betty Ann Kinney was her name. I dedicated my first book to her. Anyway, so we went out to the ocean this weekend uh, in Oregon and uh, put her ashes in the water, as she had requested. And we all took a little rock back from us. So the object lesson, though, is so this is more getting to the other sort of very interesting thing that kind of intersects with national security that then, believe it or not, did happen. So for the past like 22 years, roughly, since I was spending one summer with her when I was a teenager, um, I had been uh, engaged in a futile attempt to find my grandfather, her uh, late husband's World War II war records, military service records. And so when I was, I spent like a summer doing this when I was 14, I wrote to the archives, I wrote to the army, I actually did find out that there was apparently in the late 70s a rather large fire either in the archives or the Army Personnel Records System. I can't remember which one. Anyway, that burned up many of these records. And what was interesting was that in talking to my grandmother about this, I kept saying, where do you think the records would have been? What did he tell you about his time in the war? He flew C-47s. I knew that. He was died before I was born, by the way. 
Uh, and, and, and then said, what do you remember? Did they have a name for the plane? Did he ever talk about And, you know, she was very frustrated by these questions, not because I kept asking them, but because she didn't have the answers. And she said, you just have to remember that when everyone came back from the war, they had to put their entire lives on hold and they came back and we just never talked about it. So this whole kind of chapter was sort of lost to history. And it was always something that she found great that I had sort of endeavored to try and find out about my grandfather, her husband, but was really sad that she could never help me out. So we go back to the house. And we're cleaning out, you know, the house. And this is, she lived in this house for nearly 50 years. And we go into the basement. And my 16-year-old niece goes into one of the cabinets in the basement and starts rooting around. These same cabinets that I'd rooted around in before, mind you, when I was less than her age. Finds this, reaches back, finds a metal box, pulls it out, opens it up. It's his entire war record. Wow. It's wow. right there. It's like, I mean, it is like down to the level of receipts for like guns and blankets and Because the army cares about that stuff. They did apparently, yeah. Like dental records are in this thing. I could see like which of his teeth were cracked or, you know, whatever. And it was just this sort of just wonderful moment of, you know, it was sitting there right under our noses the whole time. And it's like three generations. It's my grandmother, my grandfather. It's me. It's my niece. It was sort of this wonderful thing. But, and it just sort of felt. You know, that it, it, it jived so nicely with what my profession has now become. You know, I, I rely on records like this all the time, and I'm always rooting around in other people's records. And, you know, I spent the rest of the night going through it and could actually, you know, they were surprisingly, uh, you know, well-written, and you could learn a lot from them because military records haven't changed that much, apparently. But it was sort of this sort of great little moment of it kind of coming full circle, and it was both meaningful to my past and my present, and uh, it was just a really, really sweet moment. And it God bless that kid for just being snoopy and reaching back there where we forgot to look and oh this it was great i don't even think she realized what she'd done but it was pretty awesome what a, a fabulous gift. story yeah it was great um so that brings us to the end of uh our, uh, this week's episode thank you for listening be sure to follow us on twitter please at ratl security uh find us on facebook at spaghetti on the wall productions that is our production company where you'll find out about a lot of other really great podcasts that we are launching right now and experimenting with uh leave us a rating on itunes or stitcher or wherever you download podcasts that's really the best way to spread the word about our show uh, we really appreciate it let us know how we're doing tell your friends tell your colleagues on behalf of ben wittis to mark hoffman wittis our special guest jeremy shapiro thank you all for being here i'm shane harris and we will see you next week Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 